One of the great celebrations of life is the 50th wedding anniversary. Um, What's more beautiful than young love? Well, it's old love. It's a couple who's faced the hardships of life, faced the challenges of living under the same roof for 50 years and sticking with it. Um, When the realities and the challenges of life have engraved those lines and, yes, those scars in life, and yet a husband and a wife has stayed together. What a great time of celebration. And, of course, this celebration looks back. It looks back to a joyful occasion. It looks back to a wedding, a wedding that happened 50 years ago. Well, this morning I want us to talk about a celebration that doesn't exactly look back to a joyful time but a celebration that looks back to a death, but a death unlike any other, a death that would indeed hold the very words and promise of life. And we'll be in Matthew chapter 26 this morning, looking in in verse 26 and following. Jesus and his disciples at this point in time were in the process of observing the Passover together. Now, the cross is just around the corner. Um, Jesus is, is observing what's, what's often called the Last Supper because soon he will face his death. You'll remember the Passover was a celebration of God's rescue of his people from the nation of Egypt, a celebration of the Exodus. You see, God had raised up a man named Moses to help de- uh, to, to lead and delivering his people from the nation of, of Egypt. Because remember, Israel had been enslaved in, in Egypt for some 400 years. And they were crying out to God for deliverance. And so God raised Moses up. And through a series of miracles, God sent plagues, 10 plagues. And throughout this time, Pharaoh refused to let his people go. And so the 10th plague was a plague of judgment. It was God's hand of judgment coming down upon the nation of Israel. The plague of the firstborn. And this is what happened. In every household, the firstborn male died. And it was such a horrible time in the nation of Egypt that Pharaoh was pushing God's people to get out, at least for a while. But God said, when he was about to deliver his people from the nation of Egypt and about to send this tenth plague, he said to his people, I want you to observe the Passover. On this night, when I come in judgment upon the the land of Egypt, I want you to take a lamb, and I want you to take that lamb and sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of that lamb, and I want you to put it on the door frames of your home. And then you'll roast that lamb and you'll eat that lamb with with bread that's unleavened or bread without yeast and, and some bitter herbs and cups of wine. And this is going to be a reminder to you of the fact that I've rescued you, of the fact that I deliver you from the nation of Egypt. And when I come in judgment upon the land of Egypt, I want you to know that I will pass over every home that has the blood of the lamb. Do you see some do you see some foreshadowing there? Because this is a picture of what God was going to do. And so Jesus and his disciples are celebrating this this Passover meal. Usually like I say with with unleavened bread with uh, generally, it was celebrated with four cups of wine, with a, with a lamb, and with bitter herbs. So let's pick up here in Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, 
and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In these verses, we see that the Lord's Supper is meant to remind us of some beautiful realities of the gospel. It's meant to remind us of some beautiful realities of the gospel. We see two gospel realities. First, the Lord's Supper reminds us of the past. It reminds us today of a bloody cross. In verse 26, Jesus says to his disciples, take this bread. And again, this would have been bread that was unleavened. So it was more like a wafer, a flat wafer. A single piece, leaven or yeast often in the Old Testament symbolized evil. And so to have unleavened bread was to, to emphasize the importance of purity in, the, in life and, and holiness before the Lord. And Jesus said, take this bread. And he broke pieces of this bread off. Now we know from 1 Corinthians ten seventeen that that a single wafer of bread was meant to signify the unity of the church. And so here we get a hint of that, a hint of the fact that that God's people, the the church, are are meant to be one. And so pieces of this bread are broken off, and, and Jesus blesses it. And then he says to his disciples, take this bread and eat it. And then what does he say? He says something that sounds so strange in our ears. He said, eat this bread. It is my body. It's my body. Now, what a strange thing to say. We know that it wasn't literally his body. Why? Because... He was there in the form of his body, and then the bread was there. So so he wasn't speaking literally. He was speaking figuratively. But in the early days of Christianity, uh, the Romans, some of the Romans caught wind of, of the Lord's Supper observance, and they began to accuse the early Christians of cannibalism because they heard in the Lord's Supper that they were eating someone's body and drinking someone's blood. And so this was a strange uh, sounding custom for, for, for the Romans. And they, 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 they said the early Christians are committing some sort of cannibalism. Well, this bread was a reminder of his body. It's a reminder that God the Son left the glories of heaven and took on the very, uh, and took on the very form of man. He became a man. God the Son became a man. And this bread is meant to remind those of us who know him that he left the glories of heaven to suffer here on earth as a man. You see, this body of the Lord Jesus would soon be beaten bloody. It would soon be brutally nailed to a cross. And so this broken bread points to that broken body. In verse 27, we see that next Jesus took a cup, and this would have been wine. Wine during this time was often mixed with double or triple amounts of water. And it says that he took this cup and and he gave thanks. And and the Greek word here for for give thanks is eucharisteo. Now, you probably recognize the sound of that. The, The English word Eucharist comes from that Greek word. And so often the Lord's Supper is called the Eucharist. And that's an acceptable uh, a way to talk about the Lord's Supper. And it just emphasizes the, the fact that to observe the Lord's Supper should be a time of thanksgiving. The Lord's Supper is also called communion. And this comes from 1 Corinthians 16.10 where, where 
Uh, the Greek word koinonia or fellowship or closeness, the idea of communion comes from. Or in 1 Corinthians 10.21, uh, the Lord's Supper is called the Lord's Table. All of these are different ways to refer to what Jesus did here with his disciples right before his death. And then Jesus said to his disciples, take this cup and drink it. And what does he say? This is my blood. This is my blood of the covenant. Of course, Jesus isn't suggesting that, that the blood is his literal blood. Now, the position of, of Roman Catholicism is that the bread and the blood, when Passover is observed, is that they literally become the, the body and the blood of Christ. And, and that became a predominant view in the church in the ninth century. A Benedictine abbot by the name of Radbertus wrote these words. Though the body and blood of Christ remain in the figure of bread and wine, yet we must believe them to be simply a figure. And after consecration, they are nothing else than the body and blood of Christ. We must believe them to be the very flesh which was born of Mary and suffered on the cross and rose from the tomb. And so some believe that, that the bread becomes the very body of Christ and the cup becomes the very blood of Christ. But that's really not what Jesus is saying. He, he's saying, this cup represents my body. This bread or represents my blood. Pardon me, this, this bread represents my body. He didn't mean it literally. Just like in Matthew 5.30 when he said, if your right hand causes you to sin, go and cut it off. He didn't mean that we would literally take a saw and cut our hands off. No, he wants us to understand that when we observe the Lord's Supper together, that when we take that bread... He wants us to remember that God the Son left the glories of heaven and he took on flesh for our rescue. That that body was beaten. He wants us to remember that his blood was poured out. And why was the blood poured out? Well, well he gives us uh, some hints here in this verse. He says, the blood of my covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus talks about the blood of the covenant and this pointed back to a time in the Old Testament after God had delivered his people from Egypt. If you'll remember, God met with Moses and he began to give his people the law. We, we get the Ten Commandments and a variety of other laws that the, that the Old Testament people of God were required to follow. God made a covenant with them at this point in time. And it's sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant or sometimes it's called the Old Covenant. And basically, God's people said, we will follow your laws. And God promised to be their God and to bless them, to make a great nation, ultimately, out of his people. But that covenant was ratified or confirmed by the blood of an animal sacrifice. And so you can see in Exodus 24, 6 through 8, Moses takes the blood of an animal and he sprinkles it on the altar and he sprinkles it on the people as a way to ratify or to confirm that covenant. Now that covenant, the old covenant, or the Mosaic covenant, was confirmed by the blood of an, of an animal. But Jesus knew that the new covenant was about to be confirmed with his very own blood. With his very own blood. In fact, in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following, the prophet spoke of the days when God would, would do a new work and there would be a new covenant the prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so it is this new covenant that Christ's blood will ratify. Notice Jesus says that his blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And this points to a theological term that, that, that we throw around sometimes. It's, it's kind of uh, probably going to sound strange to, to many of you. But I, I want to say it because I want us to understand this. It's an important concept. So, so just stay with me here. This pouring out his blood for the forgiveness of many sins is talking about what theologians call the substitutionary atonement. The, the notion of atonement means that, that our sins are dealt with at the cross so that we can be in a relationship with God, so that the enmity between us and God can be removed, and we can know the Father. And so, so that's this idea of atonement. And when you talk about a substitutionary atonement, it means that Jesus paid the, the penalty that we owed for our sin. So every one of us is guilty before a God who's holy. Every one of us have sinned and we've done things our own way. We've rebelled against God. And God can't ignore our sin. And so Jesus came and he lived on this earth in in human flesh. And he was nailed to a cross. And he died. And he was buried and he was raised to life. And because of that, Our sins can be forgiven. The payment that we owe God for our sin was paid by his own son. That's what we mean when we talk about the substitutionary atonement. Jesus took our place. He was our substitute. He paid the payment that you owed. He paid the payment that I owed. That we might be made right with with a holy God. And so, Jesus understood that his blood meant the forgiveness of our sins. In fact, in Hebrews 9.22, we read, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And in Ephesians 1.7, Paul says, in him or in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Because Jesus took your place, because he was your substitute, because he died the death that you deserve to die and that I deserve to die. Our sins can be forgiven and we can be made right with God the Father. So when you turn from your sin and you say to God, I don't want to go my own way anymore. I don't want to sin anymore. I believe Jesus came and died on the cross and was buried and was raised to life. I want to follow him. The Bible says that when you do that, you become a child of God. You become a part of the people of God. This new community that that Jesus is, is building and putting together, you become a part of that. But until that happens, you're not. You're not his until you turn from your sin and put your faith in him. Now, the the popular novel, The Shack, and recently it was released and and made into a movie. The author of that novel, there's a lot of good stuff in in, in that book, but there's also a lot of uh, troubling aspects to that book. But but the author, William Young, recently, and in March of this year, released a book in which he attacked several biblical doctrines. And one of the ones that he took aim at is the substitutionary atonement. Let me read a quote from Young in the new book. One of the narratives about God is that because of sin, God required child sacrifice to appease a sense of righteous indignation 
and the fury of holiness, Jesus being the ultimate child sacrifice. Well, if God is like that, then doesn't it make sense that we would follow in God's footsteps? But we know intuitively that such a thought is wrong, desperately wrong. You see, many people want to suggest that the cross is just about setting an example of love. But in reality, the scriptures teach that our sin creates a barrier between us and God that cannot be scaled. The only way for a holy God to receive a sinner is that Jesus step in and make a way. And that's exactly what we see at the cross. We see God's holy love. His hatred towards sin poured out on His Son. And His love for sinners in giving Jesus to make a way for us to be saved. So while young and others may not like this, this is the clear teaching of Scripture that God in His holiness will not, cannot accept our sin. But in Christ, our sins can be forgiven. Our sins can be wiped away. Now all of us instinctively understand that something like evil needs to be dealt with. We could talk about a, a murderer, a serial murderer who had murdered dozens of people. And if we said, you know what, the right thing to do would be to say, let him go. Just let him go. Forgive and forget. There's not a person in this room who would say, that's, that's great. Let's just let a guy who's killed 20-something people go. No, every one of us recognizes that evil, that sin, needs to be dealt with. It needs to be judged. Or we could talk about the likes of Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or other dictators throughout the centuries who have been responsible for the death of millions upon millions upon millions of people. We all understand that, that evil, it has to be dealt with. It, it must be dealt with. It's not okay to say that, that sin is okay, that, that, that evil is okay. You see, at the cross, sin is taken seriously. Sin is taken seriously as Jesus himself faces the judgment of God for evil and sin. And because of the cross, he makes a way for evil to be dealt with. In a way that you and I don't have to be destroyed in the process. He makes a way that we don't have to face the judgment of God against evil and sin. Oh, how beautiful, brothers and sisters, that God forgives sin. That God wipes the slate clean when we call out to Jesus. So what does this mean in our lives? Well, it means this. When, when you observe the Lord's Supper, remember the sacrifice that was made. Rem, remember what Jesus did for you. He gave everything for your forgiveness. Gave His very life. What does this mean? It means that we ought to be giving our lives back to Him in worship. It means that we ought to be giving our lives back to Him in service to say, God, you gave it all. Lord, I'm, I'm putting my life in your hands. Let me be as Paul said in Romans 12, Lord, let me be a living sacrifice. Let my life reveal the devotion and the gratitude that I feel because of what you did for me at the cross. So remember the sacrifice that was, was made. But the Lord's Supper also ought to remind us to always remember the cross. To always remember the cross. When you feel alone, when you feel alone like, like God has abandoned you, no, brother, sister, go back to the cross. You're not alone. 
when you feel unloved, when you wonder why God's allowing you to go through the things that you're going through, and perhaps you've prayed and said, God, will you help? Will you rescue? And it seems like nothing's changing. And you feel so alone. The Lord's Supper reminds us, go back to the cross. You're never alone. Sometimes the Lord allows us to walk paths we do not understand. But the cross reminds us that we're never unloved, that we're never alone. And as you battle with sin, remember the truth that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, sin has been conquered, death has been conquered, and by the power of the Spirit, God can help you to overcome sin and addiction. That's the truth of Scripture. That's the reality of Scripture. That, that because of the power of God that was at work, that, that raised Jesus from the dead, when, when He's at work in our lives, He can help us change, and He can help us become more like Christ. We can overcome sin and addiction by His strength, with His help. Third, we ought to have a thankful heart, a heart of gratitude. Look at how good God has been to us that he would make a way for us to be saved. Oh, we often focus on what God hasn't done or what he should have done or, or what, what, what we feel like he, he shorted us. But friends, think of all that he has done. Oh, we should have hearts of gratitude. And we also ought to seek unity in a faith family. God intends for every one of us not to be a, a Jesus follower out on our own. He intends for every one of us to be a part of a faith family and, and to be unified as a faith family and to seek the unity and the building up of, of the church. And we see a hint of that here and we see it developed further in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. So we've seen that the Lord's Supper reminds us of the past, of a bloody cross of a gracious God who would sacrifice his own son. Second, the Lord's Supper reminds us of the future, a glorious celebration. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the future, a glorious celebration. In verse 29, Jesus says that he will not share this cup again until the day that I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. What's Jesus talking about? Jesus looking forward to the consummation of the kingdom of God or to the end of time when everything that's sinful and wrong will be dealt with and God's awesome kingdom will be established and all that will be will be joy and happiness. Everything will be made right. It'll be amazing Jesus envisions this messianic banquet at the end of time when, when there's a great celebration. And he says, then, that's when I'll drink this cup again with you. Maybe you've seen the video of the seven-week-old baby who, who couldn't hear. And in this video, uh, floating around on the internet, uh, hearing aids are, are put in. And his mama is talking so sweet and tender to him. And as those hearing aids are put in, and he's hearing for the first time, what does that little boy hear? He hears the tender voice of his mama talking to him. Oh, it's a, it's a beauty. And the little boy begins to smile. Never heard mom's voice before. Never heard that tender, sweet, loving voice before. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know, now, everything doesn't make sense to us. We can't understand all that's going on fully. We can't get it. But if we are in Christ, we are promised that one day we'll hear clearly. 
We'll see clearly. We'll hear the voice of God face to face. We'll be right with Him. We'll hear His sweet and tender voice. Oh, it'll be a grand day. It'll be a wonderful day. So, in the meantime, when life doesn't add up sometimes, when we do not understand, we can know. We can be certain. And one day we'll hear, we'll see, we'll get it, we'll know him face to face, yes, face to face. So when you observe the Lord's Supper this morning, remember the great celebration that is to come. Remember the great celebration that is to come and in the face of sadness and grief that you face, remember there's, there's a day coming when this will all be over if you're in Jesus. That chronic pain in your back, it'll be gone. Those headaches that you dealt with day in and day out, gone. The disability that holds you back and perhaps has hindered you your whole life, huh. it'll be gone. You see, you'll have a heavenly body that works right, that looks right, that is right. Maybe you struggle barely eking by, paycheck to paycheck to paycheck, barely surviving. I want you to know one day you're going to know riches untold or the disappointment of a relationship that never was or the heartbreak of one that was but fell apart. One day it'll all be right. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. It reminds us of the great banquet that is ahead, one like we've never, ever been a part of before. So keep thinking about heaven And let the Lord's Supper remind you of heaven. So if you're in Jesus, the Lord's Supper reminds you, brothers and sisters, that this life is as close to hell as you'll ever have to be. This life is as close to hell as you'll ever have to be if you're in Christ. Yes, joys untold await. Maybe you've been to the Vietnam Memorial and you've seen that wall stretched out with name after name, after name. Every name represents a life that was given for the cause of freedom. We go to that wall to honor those who served, those who gave the ultimate sacrifice, who gave their lives that we might enjoy freedom. But every name engraved on that wall, well, every name was a person. A person with a daddy and mama, perhaps a wife and kiddos. Every name etched there, not just a name, no, a person. And so this morning, we come to this time, and in a few moments, we'll observe the Lord's Supper together, and we come to remember a person, a person, the the God-man, Jesus Christ, who left heaven and took on human flesh for our good, who gave His all, who paid the ultimate sacrifice that we might have eternal freedom. And so we remember his sacrifice. And yes, friends, we must always remember his sacrifice. The Lord's Supper reminds us of precious gospel truths. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the sacrifice and it reminds us of the celebration. Yes, the sacrifice and the celebration. So let's observe the Lord's Supper this morning, treasuring the realities of the gospel. Let's draw close to him, seeking to know him and love him as we remember the cross, as we remember and are grateful that our sins are forgiven and that our hope 
is secured. I wonder this morning if you long to be a part of that heavenly celebration. That heavenly celebration where there's no more tears and no more pain, but only joy, only good, and that which is right. Well, I want you to know there's only one way that you can be a part of that heavenly celebration. Just one way. And that's if you, and that's if you deal with the person of the, uh, of the Lord Jesus. You see, to, to be there, to, to, to get to heaven, it's not going to be because when you were here on earth, you did some religious things. It's not going to be because you came to worship occasionally at First Baptist Church. It's not going to be because you were baptized when you were younger. The only way that you're going to be a part of that heavenly celebration is if you have fell at the feet of the Lord Jesus and you've said to Him, I am sorry for my sin and I want to follow you. I believe you came and lived and died and rose again. And the Bible tells us that when you call out to Jesus in faith that He saves you and He never lets you go. As I mentioned a moment ago, you become a part of God's family. So this morning, if you're here and you have never You've never come to know Jesus. There's nothing more important for you today than to come to know Jesus. You want to have a future hope. You want to have your sins forgiven. He's the one. He's the only one. Join me in prayer.